For our BCI Research Roundup this week, we're happy to catch up with Conrad Shelkoff, who's doing some research here and, and has really done some interesting projects. He's a veterinary student as well as a graduate student working with Dr. Lubers and Dr. Apley here at K-State. Conrad, welcome. We want to hear a little bit about the research you've been doing. Yeah, good morning, Dr. White. So the research I've been working on this summer is looking at a new diagnostic tool uh, for point of care or shoot side or cow side diagnostic. And in our case, we're looking at uh, ketosis in dairy cattle, uh, which is a metabolic disease. And we want to uh, diagnose the disease earlier in the process to better uh, to better manage treatment protocol. So the device we're looking at this summer uh, is an electronic nose, which basically sniffs out samples. This summer we're looking at uh, urine samples and milk samples, and we're using the device to detect volatile compounds that come off these uh, samples uh, to determine if they are associated with any disease states. So an electronic nose is something that, as you mentioned, it's gonna kind of smell those samples? And then is there something in the samples that would make you say that this animal was sick or healthy? Yeah, so so basically uh, it smells the, the compounds coming off the sample. So in our case, ketosis uh, is a disease in dairy cattle that is characterized by biomarkers such as ketones and ketones like acetone have a distinct scent. Uh, it can also, it's also been used in other research to look at uh, different bacterial infections, uh, which have their own specific scent or smell associated with it. So is this, are, are you thinking, I mean, we're talking about actual smells. So instead of you just smelling it, is the electronic nose better? Because there's, cows with ketosis do have a distinct odor. Is the, is the e-nose better than the human nose? Well, if we think about the human nose, there's a lot of variation between individuals. Uh, the beauty of the e-nose is that it takes whatever scent and it, it takes that into a qualitative form and then runs it through an algorithm. So it's more consistent uh, from sample to sample versus a person's nose versus another person's nose, which would be, uh, there's distinct variation between that. And you mentioned this has been used before in detecting other diseases. In cattle, or is that in other species, or where, where has this been used? There's been a lot of research done in the medical field, so with humans, uh, and looking at uh, more so uh, pneumonia and other types of diseases that may be sensed from the breath or lung associated because it's a, a, a volatile sensing device. Uh, breath samples work very well, but it's also been used um, with urine samples as well for uh, urinary tract infections. Uh, there's starting to be more uh, research going into the livestock or the small animal side of the equation, uh, but not a whole lot's been done. That's an area that really needs some uh, research endeavors. Excellent. Well, what, have, what have you learned so far? Uh, I learned so far that the device, uh, in theory, uh, you would think that um, taking sense uh, would be quite simple. I guess uh, you could create quite a bit of difference between an individual who may be diseased and an individual who may not be diseased. Uh, but in reality, there's quite a bit of overlap. Uh, for our case, in looking at ketones, uh, there's a baseline ketone present in every animal uh, and where that threshold of where one is actually ill versus one who's not uh, is on a spectrum. So finding that spot between where ones are 
high in their concentration versus low for that volatile compound can be difficult. Oh, so, so it is so good that it can smell even the low normal levels. And then you've got to be able to compare to the higher levels uh, in an animal that might actually be sick. Yeah. And on top of that, samples can be complex. It's not just like we're sensing ketones. There's, there's a lot of other things, especially in milk, there's milk fat, uh, carbohydrates, proteins, and those all have uh, potentially some odor associated with them. So it complicates it a bit, but we're working out the process right now. Ryan or Philip, do you have any questions for Conrad? I've been asking my questions all summer. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> okay. So, so Conrad, where do you see this, where do you see this technology go? And you mentioned maybe looking at some other diseases, what are some other potential applications of this e-nose technology? So I think uh, you can look at it from, we'll start with a dairy perspective, uh, having these things or these e-noses uh, either in the parlor sensing milk or by the feed bunk, you could sense the air sample. Uh, and that can be used to detect different diseases such as ketosis or maybe uh, mastitis. We could also move it over to the beef cattle side of things uh, and maybe looking at to take a breast sample off of a cow uh, or a, a calf coming through the chute for BRD. Uh, it has a lot of potential to use more as a screening test. So in, initially we can determine if we're gonna have uh, an animal potentially with disease or not, and then we can use other diagnostics to further uh, determine the disease state. Conrad, you mentioned the e-nose could be a good cow size cow side diagnostic. Now, I'm picturing a big, complicated machine. Are we talking about something the size of a refrigerator, or what's how how big is this machine? So the machine we're using uh, is about, oh, about a six inches long, six, seven inches long and about four inches wide. So it fits in the palm of your hand quite nicely. It's a handheld device. Uh, ones that are used uh, more so on like processing lines or potentially used in like a milking parlor uh, would be a lot larger system. But for our research process, they make handheld ones that are pretty handy to use. So it's a handheld and you just, put it up to the sample that you want and it sniffs it? Yeah, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the basics of it. There's, there's quite a bit to sample preparation. Uh, we've been using closed tubes and then inserting a needle into a container to take the headspace off. Uh, and then they've been using them in human applications uh, and connecting them straight to ventilators in a hospital. So as long as it's somewhat close to the patient, you can detect volatile compounds. Excellent, Conrad. Really cool stuff and a, and a really neat technology to explore. And I like that you're starting it out and you've got a good progression through as your plan. We look forward to hearing updates on your continued research with this. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Morning, Brad. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you listening as well. As always, we appreciate and we've had some good listener questions in the last few weeks. We always enjoy getting those. You can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu if you're interested in a certain topic that you'd like us to discuss, or even if you just have some feedback from the podcast, we appreciate you sending that in. We've got several good topics today, and we're going to talk a little bit about 
alternative marketing or cow-calf strategies. And I think the guys have some different ideas on what would work or could work in different scenarios, as well as the people who talk a lot about labor and labor shortages. We're gonna talk about it from the other angle. How do you develop some of the talent that you need on your operation? We'll also discuss chute and alleyway configurations. What should we do with the flooring? And finally, we'll touch on an important disease, anaplasmosis. Before we get into those, the kids have all started back to school or are starting back to school. And guys, I want you to think way back, way, way back for some of you. When you were in grade school and high school, I want to go favorite school lunch. Oh, so when I was in high school, the, the newest thing that I remember was the like the buffet bar or whatever. So they had different variations of this. Um, it's like a salad bar or baked potato bar. And so that that was way better than the here's your tray with the soy burger and whatever else that was that was on there. Yeah, I'm I'm like Philip. I but we it wasn't the we didn't have the buffet, but we had leftover day, which was kind of like random choices of whatever. So you you know it's kind of mix and match, and uh, you know there's a little there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of mystery unknown with what you were going to get, but it was always that was always kind of that the, was your favorite. Yeah, that Chef's was actually choice my day was your favorite day. Sure. Yeah. 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 I like a little adventure. <laughs> <laughs> that is usually adventure <laughs> well my favorite actually would be chili and it, and it wasn't so much the chili but they always paired the chili with a really good cinnamon roll and so on chili day was cinnamon roll day and so i would say it was the chili slash cinnamon roll day was by far my favorite and that was that was pretty cool that's what our kids really like that too and they never eat the chili double me up on the cinnamon roll (laughs) that sounds like a good plan to me exactly so one of the things that we've discussed and we talked a couple weeks ago about different uh, types of cow-calf operations and investments in your cow-calf operation I want to take this a a different direction And, and based on the conversation that we actually had after we got off the air and we were talking about what are the pros and cons to, I'll call it thinking outside of the box. So what if I had a cow herd that turned over every year? What if I bought older cows and had them calve and then sold the cows and the calves at the end of the year and then started over again next year? Give me some pros and cons to that idea. Well, one of the things that I, I think about, because in, in that kind of a situation, because we we do see cow calf producers with lots of different strategies, and a lot of times we talk about um, you know genetic improvement and you know that that where it's really built on a long term um, optimization of genetics and environment that kind of thing. Well, when you're talking about kind of you know buying some older cows, getting them pregnant, selling the calves, and turning them over rapidly, then it's really about doing a really good job of buying low, sell high. Um, and if you can do that really well, it's not really so much about the genetics of the product. It's, it's your ability to really use your forages and market timing to, to make money. And I don't have any problem with that. That's, that's a different, usually that's a pretty different type of producer, a different mindset, really uh, focused on the marketing side of it and, and looking for opportunities to, to take lower valued 
forage and lower valued cattle and upgrade them. So I, I think that's an interesting business model. I'm sure not everyone could or should do that, but it's, it's different. Yeah. I, I, in Bob's right. There are, there are people that definitely make that work, but I, you know, first of all, you expose yourself if depending on how you're marketing your products, you expose yourself to two market, potentially two market fluctuations, right? You've got the market fluctuation when you buy the cows and then you've got the market fluctuation when you sell cows and calves. So there's that aspect of it. And, you know, I think as a veterinarian and maybe, maybe a little bit of a traditionalist, you know, the thing I worry about is the health risks, right? So you're constantly introducing new animals and, and maybe, maybe you could make the argument it's really an all in all out system. And so maybe you're not. Um, but I, but I think there are some health risks with, you know, purchasing unknowns basically on a continuous cycle and, uh, what you bring into your facility and your operation. So I, it's probably not going to work for everybody, but, but there might be a few people make that work. Well, Brian, I think the all in all out system though, from an economic perspective would be really difficult to, to make money because if you think about in a traditional system, you got a lot of upfront costs in developing that heifer and how's that heifer start to make money and, and pay herself off is longevity. And so she's, she's keeping in the herd and she's producing more calves. I think it's gotta be kind of the same thing with these cows. If even if you're buying, you know, four or five year old cows, just keeping them one year, it's going to be pretty hard to, to make money. In my opinion, you, you need to keep them, buy them, and you don't have all that upfront cost of developing a heifer. Maybe it's cheaper from that perspective, but you got to, the cow's got to stay around for a few years to offset that cost that of uh, purchasing her. Not if, not if you don't buy that young a cow. I mean, you're talking about four or five year old. That's, that's young, young. I'm thinking, <laughs> uh older older this is her and brian's right there's some health risk to this idea and and i'm not advocating that you should because if everybody switched to this plan it wouldn't work at all but there are some opportunities and bob you talked about maybe upgrading a little bit on both the cow and the calf and can we add some weight and you could do it with open cows and get them bred but Brian hit the nail on the head. I mean, from a from a health risk perspective, there's a lot of risk in this approach. Uh, what do you think? Are there things you could do to mitigate some of that risk? Can I get rid of that risk if I, let's say I had a good preventative health program? I don't know that you could get rid of all the risk, but a couple of things you could do is, first of all, institute a, you know, a pretty rigorous vaccination program. We don't have vaccines for all the different germs that can cause problems in a cow herd, but we have we have vaccines for some of the important ones, and that would certainly reduce some of the risk. The other thing you could do is kind of keep relatively small populations. Um, and so instead of putting all your purchases into one large grazing group, kind of keep them segregated into, you know, so now I've got some investment in uh, different, you know, uh, fencing or land or something. But I've seen this work in, in and again, it's, I just tip my hat to the people that do think outside the box that think differently than I do. So if you're in a part of the country where, uh, because it's uh, either really rough country or there's a lot of farming going on, so I'm not going to buy large tracts of land or I can't rent large tracts of land. I'm renting small tracts of land uh, where 30 cows fit or something like that. Well, maybe I buy, buy or rent several small tracts like this and kind of set it up as each is their separate entity so that if I have a wreck, it's limited to 
one small pasture. Uh, and, and again, I'm not saying that this is the wave of the future, or the way everybody ought to think, but I, I do tip my hat to the guys that kind of think outside the box and figure out ways that work in their geography and kind of they're, they tend to be, so the mindset is, tends to be, they're really good at buying and selling. And so, yes, there's risk of upside and downside, but they're good at it so that if it's moving against them, they don't act at that time. They, they have some flexibility built into their system. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting to watch people do different things. Well, and I think it plays to different skill sets and you, and you mentioned it, right? If I really like buying and selling, this is for me, if that's the part of cattle production, I that hate, I hate. <laughs> they don't then, do then that. Don't do this. Right. <laughs> and you're, you're trading off uh, one skill set for a different one and you have to enjoy what you do, but it doesn't ever, this system probably doesn't ever go to autopilot. I mean, there are times <laughs> no. on a commercial cow calf herd where you can go on autopilot for a short period of time because the cows and the calves are kind of taking care of themselves. But you mentioned the differences in skill sets and what people have. And that leads us right to our next topic where, where I wanted to talk about, we've talked about difficulties in hiring, labor shortages, but I wanna talk about it from a different perspective and both talent manager and talent developer. And I had a, a really interesting conversation and, and Bob, you were a part of this too with a veterinarian and they were talking about the people at their clinic and at their clinic, they had everybody in the clinic does every job. So you don't have somebody that just stays in this one area and does the work of helping the veterinarian or sitting at the front desk or managing the, the animals in the back of the clinic. Everybody rotates through. And I, and, and I asked him why did he do it that way? Because you, you've got to train everybody to do everything. And he said it was much more fulfilling for the employees to get to do a little bit of everything as they're part of the clinic. And I wonder how does this apply to, and what do you guys think of that idea on the cow-calf operation? And I realize fully naturally, we might have one employee and they have to do everything, but what do you think about some of that cross-training or how should we best develop talent on the cow-calf side? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here first. And, you know, I think from, from one perspective that, you know, finding the person with the right personality and the right um, demeanor and, and, and things like that, and then training them to do the jobs that, that need to be done is, is usually better than maybe you just trying to find the person that, has the right skills up front, you know, it, that may not have the right attitude. And so, you know, putting some effort into getting the right person and then training them may be better off in the long run. Because you can't, you can't train enthusiasm. That's what you're saying. So if they're yeah. not enthusiastic about the job, you can't train them. So you want somebody that's enthusiastic, excited about what they're doing, and then you'll train them on the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, I think it matters who you, the person hiring are is too, right? Cause you just mentioned an example where a veterinarian basically took feedback from his employees about what, what would make your career fulfilling to you and then took that feedback and then made the training fit that. Right. And, and if you're, if your personality as a, as a hire slash manager is you don't, 
you just don't have the skill set to train people to, to to make that kind of investment. Maybe your skill set is is really uh, more the discernment of the interviews. So you're gonna you're gonna screen a whole bunch of candidates if if you've got that luxury. But you're gonna screen a lot more people to find the one that's maybe a little more trained or a better fit for the job you need. Whereas if you're a manager who really who's really passionate about training people and seeing them grow and develop, then yeah, maybe, maybe, and I agree, attitude's important for both, but maybe you can take somebody that doesn't have those already developed or doesn't already have those skills and, and hire them. And so they kind of hit their feet with the ground running. I think it just, you have to match up both, right? It, it has to be a match for the operation. It has to be a match for the manager as well. But you guys are talking about training and that's all well and good if you have an HR department and a training manual and you've got some things like that. But on my operation, I may not have any of those things. So how am I going to effectively accomplish training my employees and being sure that they actually went through it and did it? Well, I think there's a couple of things you can do. One one is um, for, for a beef cattle production, you know, like cow calf or feedlot or stalker, you can start with the beef quality assurance materials. Um, those are really pretty good that cover a lot of the basics that I really want all the employees to understand. And, and if they don't, we can talk about it. Uh, and there's some online training, there's in-person training. And then the other thing is, is really encourage everyone, you know, in the family, in the operation and employees, everyone to, you know, take advantage of some of the local extension meetings and other opportunities to do two things. One, a lot of times you're learning from a, a speaker at the front of the room, but then you're also just interacting with your peers and, you know, everybody is participating in trial and error all the time. And, and if you get down to some good conversations with fellow uh, cattle producers, fellow veterinarians, and you can really talk about each other's successes and failures in this trial and error that we're all doing, I can learn a lot from other people that are trying to do the same thing I am. So I think there's some, I think there's some good online materials. Uh, the Beef Quality Assurance is certainly some of, of good quality materials. Extension provides some good quality materials. And then just just your peers, other people that are trying to make a living in the cattle industry are pretty good people to train me and the people around me. Yeah, but I think those can be really valuable. And you guys have some great suggestions there relative to hiring. And I would say don't sleep on the training process. I mean, even though it doesn't have to be really formal, it should be ongoing. And there should be some process. And the other thing is, as I mentioned, the, the story about the veterinarian they've done a great job in also setting expectations, right? When you, when you come on board, here's what your job will be. And here you'll be doing these things. A lot of frustration leads to mismatched expectations and reality. So I, I think it is something to, to keep in mind as you, as you go through that process. If, you, if you're telling stories, I got to tell one more. So <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was, I was at a, a meeting with a, with a feedlot manager. So he has a, a lot more employees than a typical cow calf operation. And he was expressing frustration that, you know, he does all this training and then his people just move to another job. Uh, and he was saying, I don't know if it's worth training him. And the guy that was with me turned around and said, he goes, yeah, but so you could take the attitude that if I train them, they'll just leave. But what if they stay? <laughs> then, then the training becomes really important because for the, and, and again, I, I want my employees to stay. Um, and, and the idea is uh, don't worry about the ones that leave that maybe you wasted some training on, you're training for the people that are gonna be there for the long-term. Well, uh, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of the training program is hopefully 
the people that really appreciate that and appreciate that they got it are the ones that you want to keep in your in your employee, right? You want to keep them working for you. So the, the other topic that I wanted to talk about, and just because we were kind of debating it, and Brian, you've got a, a, a background in the dairy, and a lot of times people will talk about footing for dairy cows, and how does that influence their lameness and some other areas, but let's talk about processing facilities and the value of the types of flooring, because we're coming that, that time of year, we're going to be moving cattle, cows, and calves through the chute. And let's talk about the different flooring options that are available. So what do you what do you think about concrete in the alleyway? So obviously with with the background in dairy, um, we like concrete, right? I mean, in large confinement facilities, that's what it's it's concrete. Um, and it's really critical there because those cows are are spending the majority of their time, if not all their time on concrete. So, but it does, you know, even, even in cow calf and stalker operations where we're, we're talking about, you know, probably a processing facility where maybe it's a few times a year. Um, there is the, there is the potential, um, to, to cause some issues, um, if you don't have the right flooring there and it can be anything from kind of the traumatic where you had a slip fall, uh, a broken leg, a dislocated something, um, or just simply if you don't, and I do like concrete, I'll just be out front. I, I, I like concrete. I think there's some pretty good advantages with it, but if it's not done correctly, um, it, it can be just as bad as, as anything else. So, um, and the reason I like concrete is simply for cleaning. Uh, that's the major advantage to concrete is, uh, you can get in there, you can wash everything out. Uh, you, you certainly prevent some disease issues that way, but just cow comfort as well. So I, that's kind of where I stand on the concrete. So grooves then, because you said you don't want them slipping and falling. So you want grooves sure. in the concrete? Yeah. Yeah. And in, in concretes, concrete's kind of like Goldilocks. It has to be just right. So if the, if the grooves are too shallow or too deep, you cause issues as well. Um, so I, I'm not an ag engineer, so I, I would encourage people that if you're designing a facility or you're redoing a facility um, and you're going to go concrete, which again, I think you should um, talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about and they can help you get set up. And there's, there's some other basics about, you know, facility design with concrete, especially around the shoot area, right? We want it, we don't want sharp edges. We don't like 90 degree turns coming right out of the chute. Uh, there's some, there's some other products that we can put on top of the concrete to provide traction. And that's what the grooving is for, simply provide traction, um, but you can make them deep enough where you start to cause some hoof issues, so. Yeah, you know, and I, I think what Brian said, it really, the flooring, there's two things. There's one is, is animal stability, ability to move around. The other is cleaning. And that's why in a lot of cow-calf situations, if I'm only running some cows through a chute once in a while, it, it dirt may be the best because uh, I have pretty good traction and I'm not too worried about cleaning because we're not, we're not going to have a buildup of, of manure. We're not, we're going to have plenty of time for sunshine and other things to, to take care of it. So I think there's a lot of times when, you know, no concrete is the best answer, but if I'm in a, an area where, so I'm thinking like out in the pasture working cattle, I think that's great. If I've got a, you know, place up by a barn or a facility that I'm going to run cattle through fairly frequently, then some sort of a something that I can clean like concrete becomes really important. And so it's kind of different answers for different situations, even on the on the same operation. Uh, and, and I think 
Brian has seen the same thing I have is you got to be careful with concrete because it can be sharp. And, you know, if you groove it incorrectly or new concrete that still the pH hasn't dropped or raised, I can't remember which it is, um, you know, it can cause some some hoof problems if not done well. So this is another place to, yeah, I just talked about trial and error. Talk to people that have have really good facilities and copy them. I mean, there's, there's no reason to to build everything from scratch. Uh, just find the best best examples you can find and copy them. Well, you don't want to do trial and error here because it's concrete. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Put it That's in, my it's point. a pain to take out. That's my you... point is, is just find somebody yeah. where it works really well and just do it the way they did it. What and... about these recycled tire mats? What do you guys think about those? Brian, you mentioned something about that a while ago. Yeah, I think so. So there are several products out there that, that basically are, are mats that you can put in front of the shoe. And again, it's about providing traction. And so when you get, you know, um, hopefully we're handling cattle well and they're not flying out of the chute, but you know, that does happen. And so, uh, if, if you get cattle that are coming out of the chute, really excited, a, you might want to chat with somebody about ways to, to handle cattle differently to decrease that. But sometimes it's just disposition. And when they do that, there's, they, they, you know, they're pulling and pushing a lot with their hooves. And that's a place where you get a lot of hoof erosion if you don't have the proper, um, the proper footing material. So I, you know, those, those recycled mats are great. Um, they use those and uh, clean them. They're fairly easy to clean. Um, so yeah, I, I think those are great too. I, one point on what Bob said though, too, is, you know, when you talk to people about their facilities, I would encourage you if they'll allow you go when they're actually moving cattle through, because then you can see, you know, it's easy to somebody says, Oh yeah, we love our facilities. They're great. And yeah, and maybe they are, but you might spot some things about how cattle are moving that maybe you've got some different ideas or at least things that, that might, you might talk to somebody else about how do you fix this particular movement issue or something like that. So I seeing them in person is great. Seeing them in action is even better. Well, because there's sometimes little tricks you pick up and I've worked in facilities that the cattle move a lot better if a particular door is open or closed, <laughs> depending on the facility. And you may not pick that up until you, until you go out and, and work in those areas. I, I do want to get to, because the last topic is, is kind of a big one. And we, we hear about anaplasmosis and it's starting at this time of year and it'll go through the fall where we'll have herds and we do see regions of the country differ in how much they have anaplasmosis. And some places have had it for years, some places haven't had it for as long. But I wanted to ask you guys, what is anaplasmosis? And if I've got a cow-calf herd, what should I be looking for? Well, anaplasmosis is an interesting disease because it's, it's mostly carried by ticks, but really anything that can move blood. So even surgical instruments or, or needles or, or palpation sleeves can move it. But we think of ticks as probably the primary mover. So any, you know, so areas where um, ticks thrive better, so wetter, uh, heavier forage, those types of things um, may, may be part of, part of the reason why we see some geographic differences. Um, but then those, those ticks carry this organism and the organism actually attaches to the red blood cells. And then it makes those red blood cells then go through the body and are, are removed. And, and so the animal actually becomes low in red blood cells and red blood cells carry oxygen. So the animal becomes low in oxygen. So some of the, so in a severely affected animal, 
they'll actually kind of be in a stupor or quite um, aggressive because it's like holding your breath until you can't. <laughs> and, and so they're just very aggressive. Uh, and, and they really die from the effects of not enough oxygen to the tissues. Now, the interesting, that's the worst case scenario. There's a lot, a lot of big gradations where an animal has some anemia, some destroyed red blood cells, but not enough where you see those obvious clinical signs. And then others that are, they've, they've kind of managed this, they've got some immunity or they've developed uh, so that they're not very anemic at all. So, and, and Brian has done some work in this area and probably could give you a lot more information about, you know, how do you control it? How do you manage this? Because it's a lot about, in those areas of the country where this disease is common, it's not about getting rid of the disease. It's about managing and managing around it. Yeah. And, and just, I mean, just a couple other things you might see and, and Bob's right. There's, there's kind of a gradation of signs. Um, typically we think that older animals usually see, we see more severe disease in them because uh, younger animals can regenerate their red blood cells quicker. So they're, they're able to, so oftentimes if it's a mild infection in a young animal, um, they still get the infection, but they're able to make new red blood cells fast enough that we don't see those severe signs. Whereas older animals kind of, as they age, they kind of lose that capability to make new red blood cells. And uh, so typically the severe disease we see in older animals and, um, so are you saying older and younger there, Brian? Like, so we don't see it much in calves, but we see it more in cows. Yeah, yeah, yep, okay. yeah. Um, and so you know, and other things. So in, but in calves, you might see some production losses associated with it. If you're, you know, if you know you have it in your herd, uh, you may just you may see some growth performance effects. Uh, older cows, uh, we've seen abortions. You see, you see performance losses there too. But uh, those are the ones where you can see that you know, they, the sudden death kind of deal. And usually it, it's not terribly sudden, but, you know, they, they lose some weight and then they just kind of go. And uh, the other thing that you'll see that kind of an obvious sign, uh, people often describe they, the cow's mucous membranes are yellow. And that's simply they're are paler because they've lost enough red blood cells that they lose that pinkish shine. So mucous membranes, meaning the, the uh, gum tissue, uh, sometimes the sclera, the eye, and then the, the vulvar tissue are probably the most common ones. So, so one of the things that Bob mentioned, and, and I think great explanation there, Bob, it, it, this disease is basically removing red blood cells, which carry our oxygen. So we might see cows that are staying a little behind the herd. They're not quite keeping up with everybody else just because of how you mentioned this disease works, we want to be really careful when we get them up because you both mentioned there could be sudden death and it's not really, the disease has been going on for a while, but if I get them excited and they can't move enough oxygen, no oxygen to the brain and the heart are, are bad things. Yeah, yeah. We definitely talk about if you're dealing with an anaplasmosis situation, say maybe it's a herd where we've had a death or two, so we know that we're kind of having a problem. I would be very gentle in my animal movement. We don't want them jogging. Um, we don't. We, we want to keep them as quiet as possible as we move them. And, and the reason we might move them is uh, we can give some, there are a couple of antibiotics that are approved for treating um, anaplasmosis. And that kind of helps get over this critical time period when they might die. Um, it doesn't necessarily solve all our problems, but treating them with antibiotics, like an injection of an antibiotic is one control method for certain situations. 
Um, we can feed antibiotics in their feed if we're delivering daily to the cows a supplement or something like that. And there are some uh, antibiotic approved for inclusion in a mineral mix with the hope that the cows eat enough every day. And that's, that's the struggle. Anytime we do self-feeding of, of antibiotics to control anaplasmosis is not all cows eat uh, the mineral at the dose that we want them to every day. And that's both for mineral nutrition and in this case, uh, supplying an antibiotic that helps prevent those symptoms. Um, so it, there are some challenges with uh, controlling this disease, um, particularly, and again, you, you mentioned, Dr. Brad, that you know there's parts of the country where we see this a lot and parts of the country where they don't see it at all. And in reality, those are, those are true. And where I see it a lot, I have usually relatively small caseload because we've kind of developed some, a bit, some, some stability, some immunity. It's on the margin between those two areas where um, cows have, are pretty unexposed until this year. And that's the year when they really, you have a lot of animals that could get quite sick and you can have pretty high death loss. So right at that border between where it's common and uncommon is where we actually see the biggest problems. So keep an eye out in your herd and your area for anaplasmosis. If you if you think you might have it or you might have issues with it, talk to your veterinarian. And before you can, we you you mentioned some of the antimicrobials that could go in the feed. You need a veterinary feed directive to apply those to your herd. So make sure it's a right fit for your area, and talk with your veterinarian on the prevention and and treatment plan that works for you. So as always, we appreciate you joining us, spending some time with us, and we enjoyed visiting with you. And if you have questions, comments, anything you'd like us to talk about on the next podcast, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.